Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Yeah, I, I found that very interesting and uh, sort of getting into that debate that people were able to separate Cook as a great navigator, someone who had a great set of skills and to sort of isolate him from the broader colonial experiment and the brutality of that. And certainly as Indigenous people, we don't see Cook as a, a significant part of that machine that brought such destruction. Memory, Memorials and Truth. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. With an ever-increasing discussion about the impacts of colonisation and the need to decolonise, global debate around the meaning and significance of statues, memorials and place names has been the focus of heated political and social commentary. In the US, following the death of George Floyd and subsequent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, Confederate monuments became the target of protesters who saw them legitimising stories of conquest and power. Here in Australia, growing unrest over a lack of Indigenous representation and the destruction of sacred cultural sites in Western Australia and Victoria has forced us to once again contemplate a unique set of questions. Do we value First Nations memorials in the same way as colonial statues? Is the removal of colonial monuments an erasure of our history? And what is the role of the media in constructing narratives about our past? These were just some of the ideas explored during the recent panel discussion, Memory, Memorials and Truth, a big thinking forum co-hosted by the University of Technology Sydney and Sydney Festival. Joining the conversation were multi-award winning journalist and author Chris Masters, Andrea James, a theatre maker, performer and creative producer, a Yorta Yorta Gunai Kurnai woman, she's the writer and director of Sunshine Supergirl, and Professor of Indigenous Policy and Acting Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute at UTS, Lyndon Coombs. Let's listen in now as Chris Masters reflects on the challenges we face in a post-truth world, the impact of a post-Trump era, and the rise of alternative facts and misinformation in political discourse. Well, it's a new challenge. Journalism's always challenging, but this is a really scary one. I don't think it began with Trump. Trump didn't happen in a in a vacuum. So the problems aren't all external, you know, a lot of them are internal. Trump rose to power with a lot of support from the media, Fox News in the United States in particular. And I, I think, you know, you can trace it right back to even the Reagan era where the old principles of journalism began to be surrendered. The political class began to dictate the news agenda. There was commercialization of news when they started to make money out of it. The entertainment principles came into play. And so I think there's been a gradual uh, trending away from solid principles where journalism said our job is to make what is important interesting rather than what is interesting important. And it's got to a point, I think, where we have news organisations that don't take an interest in the facts. You know, and I, I think if you're a news organisation and you have no interest in the facts, then you've lost the plot, you shouldn't be there. And here in Australia, journalists, plenty of journalists, plenty of people we work with belong to those organisations and, and behave in that way. And it's, it's hard for us to attack them because they're our own colleagues. Where we often find it's the diaspora is such that we're all connected to one another. And historically, I, I have defended journalists who do terrible things, but I can't anymore, I'm afraid. You know, I just think that uh, they might continue to do what they do, but they shouldn't call themselves journalists. Since it's been obviously the object of a lot of observation and commentary, what were your views in terms of the role of the media in what we saw as, I guess, what was a, a climax of Trumpism with the storming of the Capitol building? People laid the blame at Trump. But did you see a particular role of news agencies and journalists in that incident? You know, we often sort of look for balance. And I, I must say, I didn't see a lot of balance. 
what you do in journalism when you confront a story is, of course, you you have to canvas the totality, look at look at everything. But sometimes it's clear that one side is terribly wrong. And it wasn't just uh, Trump that promoted them, it was others, you know. Uh, I, I find it really hard to blame Antifa, as I've heard other people do. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's got to a point, I think, where it's really, really hard to apply simple reason to uh, news coverage. Television's got a power, though. People saw it for themselves and people saw what a disaster Trump has been. So, you know, the optimist in me says that that's a lesson for all of us and maybe it's less likely to happen again. We love a bit of optimism and it's always very easy to look at the United States and see it as an exception. But I think one of the important comments that you make with your work is that actually we need to also be reflective about these things back here. And I was wondering if there are incidences or examples of where you see particular dangers in the way we might be falling into some of the same traps here. Yes, because, you know, we allow the division to fester. We become tribal. We become this mob shouting from this corner at this mob shouting from this corner. And we get nowhere when, when that happens. Lyndon, one of the points Chris makes that I think is really important is the power of the image and the image of George Floyd and the footage of his his murder sparked worldwide outrage. And one of the things we've seen as a result of that was, I guess, a mobilisation of the Black Lives Matter movement and it raised awareness of this issue in Australia. But I was just wondering what your reflections were then on why an issue that we campaign endlessly about here can only generate a heightened conversation when we see it in another country. And do you think that such moments actually lead to substantive change? Yeah, it was interesting following that, that a lot of uh, African-Americans said there should be a monument to the smartphone because capturing that and seeing it rather than just telling or reporting on it makes a, a whole heap of difference. And I think Perhaps from an Australian point of view, we see America as, I don't know, more exciting, more excessive. The boundaries of that are much greater. The history of slavery, we've seen movies about it. The issue of race is, I think, treated differently. Not better or worse, but treated differently. But certainly seeing those images makes a huge impact. And I remember when the George Floyd video came out, I couldn't get past about 60 seconds of it because some of the work that we do around justice, deaths in custody, that's really tough stuff emotionally, intellectually, trying to work around that. Not long after that, I think it was maybe a few months, six months, there was vision just down the road here of a police officer sweeping the legs of a young Aboriginal boy in Surrey Hills and he fell on his face, broke his teeth. And that was probably an incident that occurred around this country every day. It was just Monday. But because it was captured and people saw the vision and the brutality of that, that makes an impact. And so having that vision, I think, was absolutely pivotal to that movement. And what we've seen on the back of that is the day-to-day work. I think, you know, every day there are people that we work with Indigenous communities, Indigenous organisations that are constantly doing this work and it's not exciting, it's gruelling, it's tiring, it's emotionally distressing, but because of that constant pressure, when there's an incident like George Floyd or we see something like that, it actually gives a spark and a bit of accelerates some of those issues. So people were there ready to go on that. So it wasn't just this one incident, that one incident was an instigator to all the other good work that has been happening and then you push forward on that. And certainly the Black Lives Matter movement has stuck, you know, with a 24-hour news cycle and, and Trump, I wake up every morning to see what President Trump has done overnight. When it's moving that quickly, it's hard to maintain these movements, particularly ones that are, are really difficult to confront for a lot of people for different reasons. But sort of having that that vision, having that momentum has been really important. I just want to follow up on that because I think that's a really important point that Chris and you have both made now about 
how there is a, a new way in which we're seeing news. And once you see the image, it tells a story that can counter a lot of misinformation. And you do get these sort of groundswells of outrage. But I was wondering from your perspective, do you think there are any strategies for actually translating that into something more concrete? I think not just of the Black Lives Matter movement, but say something like the footage from Dondale, outrage Royal Commission, but we then see 100% of young people in Northern Territory detention are Indigenous. So just from your perspective as somebody who works in policy and is trying to make changes, is there a way to actually convert that outrage into actual change? Yeah, there is. It's sort of a hard, long game. Uh, Over 20 years of being in Indigenous policy, you know, some things have changed, some seem to, to stay the same, but it is that constant pressure that people are able to apply and when you see a a protest that there's a whole range of other strategies that are going on around it to ensure that what we're actually asking for gets done and again that takes a lot of work a lot of intellectual rigor being able to force these issues through particularly when there are governments government agencies that are quite hostile to some of those issues so being strategic, using those moments, capturing those moments, that's all part of the strategy to push forward. And Andrea, in the last year, we've seen the destruction of several significant sacred sites. And I should say that in the context that hundreds have been destroyed, but a couple actually made the news, which might have been one of the significant things about it. What were your reflections on why Indigenous cultural sites remain so vulnerable And do you feel that there's a changing understanding of the importance of those sites? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, when those caves got blown up by Rio Tinto, you know, the heartbreak of the people was palpable. And I think we all felt that right across the nation. And I think, you know, we have these land rights protections, but they're extremely vulnerable and they're manipulated, you know, and there's these massive forces, you know, big mining, real estate farming, all of those things are kind of really quite corruptive forces, I think, in our political landscape here in this country. And I think there's a sort of a constant feeling of our land being continuously up for grabs, you know, even if we do have kind of little wins along the way. So, you know, we're kind of having to be continuously on guard. And I don't think that will ever change, actually. You know, and it's exhausting for our communities to have to continuously protect our sacred sites You know, and I think that for us, these places have meaning, but unless others around us have meaning for that, then they're not protected. You know, and even if they do have meaning for people, it's like that's ignored as well. And I think, you know, sacred sites, they're not a static thing. They're not necessarily just things that happened in the past that we're trying to hang on to. You know, there's new sacred sites, you know, like recently... When we all travelled to Borellan, we went and visited Yvonne's wall, you know, this brick wall that she used to hit a tennis ball up against. And that, that's become a kind of a sacred site. And, you know, not only the Aboriginal Wiradjuri community value that, but the wider community value it as well. So, you know, I wouldn't see anybody going down there to bulldoze Yvonne's wall. So, look, it's a constant struggle and battle and these sites remain very, very vulnerable and we we have to protect them with all our might and it's exhausting. I just want to pull out something you've said there that I think is really interesting and that is that actually there is a a role that storytelling can play in terms of that connection. I just wonder if you can reflect on that a little bit more, particularly given you are a storyteller and a creative practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, these sites don't just exist in isolation. Like I said before, they're given meaning and the stories about them are handed down over time for generations and generations. So not only do we have to be engaged in sharing that knowledge, you know, with our own people, somehow we need to be able to get the importance of that across to those around us as well. You know, so that communication is sort of really important. And if those people don't value us and they don't value our sites, you know, and if there's competitive forces around those sites, it's a very difficult thing to achieve, I think, sometimes. I just come back to you on that, Lyndon. Do you sense a change in the valuing of Indigenous knowledges? I do. I think the blowing up of Jook and Gorge had an impact. I felt that was different because, again, working in Indigenous policy, seeing the amount of cultural heritage that has been destroyed is heartbreaking. But a 40,000-year-old site with particular 
value and not all was told about how important that place was. But I did get a sense that the broader community was outraged by that because, yes, it belongs to those people, but it's Australian heritage. This is actually stuff that can belong to everyone, that can be used to teach people more about Aboriginal culture and history and what this means. You know, sort of juxtaposed with the fire at Notre Dame, you know, a couple of hundred years old and and sites that are tens of thousands of years old. And that, you know, there was, for the first time that I think I'm aware, that there was actually a penalty of substance, I, I guess. I mean, the CEO was ordered out with a $25 million parachute, but there was action after that, and that's a start. And I think people were happy with that. I think they wanted to see some justice around that, but a long way to go. Then we saw with the Jabarong trees in Victoria that there is this constant threat, and Aboriginal cultural heritage seems to always come second to commercial and other interests. And that's, I think, the state of play today. But, yeah, on, on the back of the Jook and Gorge process, I think that's something to build on. Scott Morrison recently announced a change to the national anthem from young and free to one and free. How important is that kind of symbolism in terms of changing national narratives? I think symbolism is very important. And going back to the Howard years and we had this symbolic reconciliation and practical reconciliation, that wasn't it. I think symbols are very important, but this one came across as a bit of an insult, really. It appeared to be a pretty slapdash process that Prime Minister Morrison spoke to a few selected advisers, Indigenous advisers. And this is, again, something that, as a movement, Indigenous people haven't asked for. No Indigenous group that I know asked to change the national anthem. And it's like with Black Lives Matter, What the ask is, is stop targeting people of colour, stop locking them up and stop killing them when they're in custody. And the response is, we'll change the name of coon cheese. You know, we need to be able to focus on these substantive issues. And that was, I think it was less than constructive because I found it insulting. And it doesn't progress any issue anywhere. I think the symbolism is actually negative because it's, again, you know, beads and blankets instead of some real restitution, some real justice. Just a final pick-up on on the point you're making there, because you did start by saying symbolism is important. I wonder if you could maybe reflect on how you've seen a simple, very symbolic gesture like an acknowledgement or welcome to country have an impact over the time that it started to become now quite an acceptable, almost normative thing to do? Yeah, so things like that, the Aboriginal flag, acknowledgements of country, welcome to country, at least, you know, at the very beginning of whatever process it is, um, says that Aboriginal people are here and are recognised. And I've seen a shift in the last 20 years of my career within Indigenous policy that certainly at the start, it felt like Aboriginal people weren't there, that we were invisible, that we weren't part of these broader processes or that we were something tacked on to the end or something exotic and none of that really worked. Whereas some of these things, and I know that acknowledgements of country and other things can be seen as trivial, but they do serve a purpose, I think, and again, something that can be built on. Like with the Aboriginal flag, we saw... That is an issue that Indigenous people, we love that flag. We love the symbolism of that flag. It means a lot to us. And when there were issues around the copyright and the use of that, a lot of people got quite upset and quite emotional about that. And, you know, having that Aboriginal flag is a real symbol for Indigenous people to unite under. So that's really important. You can look at how Indigenous stories and culture have been overlooked and are now forming part of the larger national narrative and challenging that. 
But I guess one of the venerated myths that we've had, Chris, has been around the Anzac legend. And you've written a lot about Australia's contribution to war. And I was wondering if you could reflect for us how important you see that Anzac narrative has been in shaping Australian identity and what your reflections are on, on the role it's played in who we are as a nation. Well, a myth is a, is a myth. It's not necessarily reality. If it's got some use, it's that it's aspirational. And of course, we would like to think that as Australians, we volunteer, we don't fight unnecessarily, you know, it's called the defence force, and that when we fight, we're tough and fair. I think all of that's got some purpose as, as an aspiration. But if it's nonsense, if it tells us that we're something we're not, if it teaches us to overextend ourselves and engage in unnecessary war and unnecessary violence, then it's obviously massively counterproductive. And I think we've seen that with the Afghanistan story. Um, and war brings out the best of us, but it also brings out the worst in us. And it seemed that we got to a point in the Anzac narrative where we, we just wanted the courage and the sacrifice those stories told. Uh, the story of the ugliness of war began to be airbrushed out of the Australian War Memorial and it became a kind of a, a theme park and, and started to tell, I think, a dangerous story. This is what we see in the, the Afghanistan story now. Australians are uncomfortably coming to recognise that war is also horribly ugly and uh, if we came to believe the warrior myth, that is that Australians have some natural aptitude for violence and that they're allowed to do it. I mean, what I found shocking about the Afghanistan story and the slow revelation that some of our people allegedly behaved abominably is that the Australian public was saying, this is a difficult story for journalists to tell, by the way, and, you know, I think one of the best things you can do in journalism is actually challenge the public, take the public on. And this is a, has been an example of it where you're saying to the Australian public, look, uh, it's not all right for Australians to do whatever they like. If they do it and they're wearing an Australian slouch hat, it's somehow all right. And I think people continue to mount that argument. So no, I think it's absolutely time for the War Memorial to have some kind of a gallery that, that actually tells the story of how war can also be atrocious and ugly. You know, you can't do it in a way that uh, frightens the children. But I think that uh, when Charles Bean, the journalist historian who was principally responsible for setting up the War Memorial, I think he really believed in telling the truth. And uh, I'd like to think we don't lose sight of that. I was just interested in picking up on something you mentioned there because, as you say, these myths become sacred mm. and you mentioned it's the role of the journalist to challenge them. But I was wondering if you could reflect on how hard that is. I mean, there must be a lot of pushback when you try and challenge them. If we can think of that from our own perspective as Indigenous people when we've tried to challenge those national myths. But from your perspective as a journalist and somebody who's written in this area, what kind of pushback and challenges do you get in simply wanting to tell the truth? Well, it was really where I worked in journalism. I was at Four Corners for a long time, and you have the privilege at Four Corners to take on the difficult subjects, and that was my approach to the work, that I had this unusual privilege. I operated on a cab-off-the-rank principle, so it was never hard to work out what the next story I, I needed to do because it was usually the story I'd least wanted to do, you know, because, you know, Alan Jones or the Queensland Police Force, all that sort of stuff, but they were important. And I think narrative is also important. When I look back at my career and I, I say, well, yes, look, I really did make a few stories that did make a difference to the nation, a positive difference, I think, what was the reason for that? A lot of it was good, hard, solid, conventional, classic journalism, you know, wearing out shoe leather and working hard and discovering facts and finding things that people didn't know yesterday. But a lot of it was narrative too. A lot of it was saying, look, this is not your problem, it's our problem. And that's what, in a way, we've tried to do with the story of the war crimes in Afghanistan the good thing about it, from my point of view, here I go again, looking to, to finish on an optimistic note, is that a lot of good, honest, 
soldiers who were involved in some pretty appalling violence held to the principles of defending the innocent and came away from that experience with a lot of courage and spoke up. And, you know, one of them said to me, you know, I didn't join the SAS to shoot an unarmed teenager in the back. And I'm, I'd like to think that that principle has held. Thank you. Andrea, nowhere is the national narrative more contested than on Australia Day. Is there a way to change the debate about something as divisive as that? And what role can the performing arts play in these kind of debates that seem quite intractable? Yeah, well, it's a big one, isn't it? Australia Day, uh, change the date. And, you know, like you say, recently we had that one word changed in, in the anthem. You know, it's a very small symbol. I mean, obviously... Australia Day is a very painful day for us and how we get through that and how we continue on. I think that the debate, the increasing debate about that day is really, really exciting, actually. And there is artists like Briggs. I think Briggs is doing some fantastic stuff. You know, rapper, artist, comedian. I mean, he says you can call it what you want, but it don't mean a thing. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, even if we change the date, what do we do then? And I think that culture and performance, you know, has a lot to do with what we would do with that day. But I think that where we're all at at the moment, I think these localised responses, you know, I love it in Sydney. Survival Day is fantastic, you know. We all come together and we dance and, and we sing and we mourn. But I think that the agitation around that day is really, really interesting and I think that a lot of people around us, non-Aboriginal people, are really starting to take it on board as our cultural institutions. And I think we need to keep agitating because it's something that we need to keep talking about and that it does need to change. And there's some really exciting artists you know, out and about. You know, Nakia Louie is really getting out and agitating about that day as well. So, you know, I think we've just got to keep at it. There's been a great response, as you say, from particularly Indigenous creatives around the day that I guess really challenges about the fact that the date can't change, but it's how we mark it. Yeah, what do we do on, on that day? I mean, it's not a celebration for us and it's hurtful that people want to do that. I'm not sure what would happen if we changed that day, actually, whether that would help and then if it does, how do we celebrate what Australia is? But January 26th certainly isn't the day to do that. And I think that artists you know, and performers have a lot to do to influence what happens on that day and I think we just need to keep chipping away at it. You've just heard Andrea James, theatre maker, performer and creative director. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight we're bringing you the UTS Big Thinking Forum, Memory, Memorials and Truth, held last month as part of this year's Sydney Festival. Joining the discussion were multi-award winning journalist and author Chris Masters, Professor of Indigenous Policy and Acting Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, and creative producer Andrea James. Let's return to the conversation now as Lyndon Coombs reflects on the role that memory can have in determining our national identity. The commemoration of Captain Cook's navigation of the East Coast in 1770 has proven a polarising event, but how has the debate around its acknowledgement influenced the national narrative? Yeah, I found that very interesting and sort of getting into that debate that people were able to separate Cook as a great navigator, someone who had a great set of skills and to sort of isolate him from the broader colonial experiment and the brutality of that. And certainly as Indigenous people, we don't see Cook as a, a significant part of that machine that brought such destruction. And it, it's similar with the monuments as well here in Sydney, that they are a point to talk about. I think the way that we discuss them and the way we go about them, that they either stay or go, is not really the discussion. The, the reason is, why were they put there? You see in the United States, 
It was after the Confederates lost and they wanted to make a statement and put these monuments and statues up everywhere just to remind African-Americans of who they are and, and the current debate around military bases in the US as well, named after Confederate figures. We've got universities, roads, buildings named after people who had significant roles in massacres. We know that. That's the discussion that I find interesting around that and that people should be brought to the position, and I think there's significant evidence to say, that certain people or certain monuments to people just shouldn't be. And if we're able to have that conversation, everyone, I think, will come to that position because the evidence is there for it. So at the moment, I'm not really into whether we should be pulling them down and replacing them or putting up others next to them. I think we need to have that discussion and people will come to a conclusion if we're able to go through that process. Andrew, I might come back to you. Obviously, Sunshine Supergirl is telling a story that many people probably think they know but don't know everything about. They're going to find out they don't know as much as they think they do, but about an iconic Australian figure. And I was just going to ask you what drew you to the story of Yvonne Goolagong Corley? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the big question I asked myself and why I was so fascinated with that story is it's, it's about the miracle of her success, you know, and why did she make it when so many others didn't, you know, and we all know that there would be many other people that had just as much talent as her. So it was, it was quite miraculous and I was really interested in that and I was interested in the politics of it, not that politics was ever the force for Yvonne at all. She just enjoyed this game and she loved the way she was able to move in it as well. So she's the first Aboriginal Women's World Champion, 1971. And there were a whole lot of things, I think we all know about the public part of her story, but there were a whole lot of things in her private world that to me were really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's a great story. A personal story becomes great for creative and dramatic purposes because it has broader themes in it. What are some of the other themes that you're bringing out in the work? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, I'm fascinated by black excellence, really. And I was really interested in how her talent superseded, you know, race and privilege. I mean, a lot of people, they didn't know that she's a Wiradjuri woman, for example, you know, and that to me is a travesty. They always go, oh, she's a young Aboriginal girl. But for us, it's important that her nation was named as well. And the influence of her family and culture around that, the place that she came from was really influential for her as well. And I think a lot of people just sort of wanted to broad brush stroke her as well. So that's why I was really interested in telling a lot of the detail with that story. And what are you hoping an audience will take away from it, apart from obviously just feeling good? But I'm, I know you've got a bigger agenda than that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, when she rose up in amongst the ranks, we didn't even have the right to vote. You know, so I think her story tells a lot about what Australia was back then and what we could be. I think it was amazing that the township of Barallan rallied around her so much, that, that helped her success. And I think for us, I think there's a still a long way to go for us to gather around our, our young people. I think the fact that there's so many of our young people incarcerated is still an absolute travesty. You know, that the fact that Ash Barty took so long to rise up, it's been 50 years since Yvonne came to her success as well. So, you know, there's a real long way to go and I think we can really celebrate Yvonne's achievements but there's just too much time between each person rising up and, and that really needs to be worked on in this country. Chris, obviously we've been talking about the importance of stories and challenging myths. From your perspective, is there enough diversity in the media? No, not at all. And it's more of a problem now than I think it's ever been. And it's always been a problem. When you have news organisations that, as I said before, aren't interested in the facts, you, you worry. And when you come to recognise that it seems that their role is to advocate, you know, for perhaps other business interests of, uh, of the big proprietors, then uh, that's absolutely scary. It must be clear that we need honest, responsible gatekeepers. The news is really important. Information matters. We supposedly live in the information age, and yet it's hijacked right and left. And for business reasons, it seems, it's less than ideology. You know, you have proprietors saying, well, we're not going to go for that audience because 
the ABC or Fairfax has already got them. So let's go for that audience instead. And then they use the old tabloid trickery to hang on to that audience. You know, it used to be via flattery. You simply tell your audience that it's okay for you to have these prejudices. It's okay for you to be angry. It's okay for you to feel like you're, you're being isolated and left behind. But the real job, as I, th- I think, is to challenge that audience and to develop a narrative that helps them to listen and, and helps them to understand. And we just don't live in that world at the moment. Just, a, I guess, a, a final element of all of that, and Lyndon mentioned the power of images that are often taken on mobile phones and the rise of social media that can create all these bubbles. How have you seen that as a dynamic that plays into this, where people can you know, basically get their news where they want, which could be a positive thing, but also can create huge bubbles for themselves? Yeah, well, I remember when they introduced the notion of audience feedback, you know, the online forum after a Four Corners program went to air, and this was right back in the in the 90s it was probably at the beginning of the sort of digital revolution the notion that an electronic media actually improves democracy because everybody gets a say well i have to say i just found it massively dispiriting because there wouldn't be a energizing useful productive debate at the end of those programs it was just dealing with rubbish you know people getting cross because you wore a green shirt or didn't like the way you spoke. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't see why that's that's helpful. It feels to me like you're letting bad ideas win a lot of the time. So I haven't found the social media uh, revolution all that impressive. You know, I have to curate it myself. And I, I sometimes find myself being hurt by it, you know, I'm not only because of the mad bloggers and the people who are vicious and cruel and have no identity, but just, funnily enough, I used to say to myself, I can't block this person, this person who was mouthing the awful sort of stuff that led to the Christchurch massacre. I said, it's important for me to know they're there and to keep an eye on them, but it's appallingly dispiriting as well. Lyndon, from your perspective, taking this back then to the Indigenous experience, what's the role of truth-telling? We talk about it a lot as a really key pillar. It's re-emphasised in the Uluru Statement. What do you see its key role as being? Yeah, so particularly in some of the work that I do around treaty is about truth-telling. I think some of the issues we picked up before around the destruction of Aboriginal cultural heritage, but also the, the history of this country that we have never had that in a a national way. So when you look at perhaps other countries like South Africa, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because we had to understand as a country why we need this process. So having that truth-telling conversation is again a very hard, very complex one. And in this age, media age, it's very difficult to define truth. People will take slices of that analyse it, try to discredit a whole issue based on on one misplaced word or or incident. And so that's a big challenge um, for a country like Australia who has its mythologies, and this very much runs against those mythologies. The values that we have of being egalitarian, of justice, that we are all free and equal, all of these things are challenged by the experience of and history of Indigenous people. And so we need a process that is suited to this country to have that discussion, much like the issue around the the monuments. I think we, and I do as well, sometimes try to jump ahead to see what a treaty would look like and what rights and restitution there would be in this process in the, the, the end result of that. But what's really important is this process to bring everyone to this point. And there's a lot of work to do, incredibly challenging and incredibly complex. just want to draw out one point you've made there that I think is really important. And I know you've done a lot of work in the reconciliation space as well. But, you know, obviously there's an element of truth-telling that's about us being able to keep our stories, 
giving voice to people whose experience and histories haven't been heard. You think particularly of the importance of storytelling for our stolen generations. But I think in what you said, Lyndon, it's really clear that those processes, both of truth-telling and treaty, have a lot to offer non-Indigenous Australians. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, so in some of the work around reconciliation, one of the things that well, I found that cuts through is uh, massacre sites and there's been some very good work from people at the University of Newcastle on sort of mapping these sites and there are particular places where the town has kind of fronted up to it. They had the courage and curiosity and wherewithal to confront a pretty brutal story in these occasions and it actually connects Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to place and time and history. And where that's done well, it is a really good platform for reconciliation for other discussions to come. And so that's one thing that we've found works. I studied this stuff at university, I, I work in it and I'm constantly learning new things. You know, most recently it was the the industrial scale of trade of Aboriginal body parts around the world in the 1800s and much later. I only found that out six months ago. I knew it happened, but I didn't realise how extensive that was. And so I think those little journeys are there for every Australian to take. And if there's something that's happened in your town or down the road, I think people tend to take an interest in that. What were the circumstances around it? And it actually sort of triggers people into learning more, talking more, and being more aware. Thank you. Andrea, we've obviously talked about big narratives, but you've really focused with your new work on the telling of a personal narrative. And I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about why you think the telling of those personal stories are actually really an important part of a larger discussion. Mm, Well, yeah, I mean, you know, personal stories and storytelling you know, is really part of our national fabric. It's how we kind of come together and gain understanding as well. And, you know, like you say, you know, when those aunties and uncles were able to tell of their own personal experience within Stolen Generations experience, that really led to the Sorry Day as well. So, you know, those personal stories are incredibly powerful and it leads to a greater understanding. You know, I I think Australia couldn't ignore that anymore when those men and women spoke from their heart, you know, from their really, really personal place. You can't ignore that. We're a really rich storytelling culture. That's how we transfer knowledge and we come together and we share that as well. So, you know, storytelling is vital. It's vital to our national fabric and our First Nations stories are a very, very important part of that. Just a follow-up to that. I mean, obviously, I think one of the challenges is that within the Indigenous community, those stories sit with people who've been incredibly marginalised and disempowered. And obviously you have a role as a creative practitioner and a storyteller. I was wondering what your view is in terms of how we can bring those stories from the margins in so that they get heard by the broader audience that deserve to hear them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those stories need to be valued, you know, for one, but we all have family yarns, you know, and for me, I think that's the most important place to start. You know, we all come from a clan base You know, we all like to get around the kitchen table and and have a good yarn. And so for me, that's a great place to start. You know, and if that leads towards a poem and a song, you know, and maybe a dance and a painting, even better. And then I guess if people start to learn to value that, you know, it all starts with the self-belief. Our connection with elders is incredibly important. And the more we value our elders as well and listen. And I think, yeah, look, if we can tell our own personal stories, family stories from our own family clan group, and if people then start to take an outside interest in that, even better. You know, in places like the Australia Council for the Arts, you know, the Aboriginal Arts Panel is really, really important because if we get paid to tell those stories, that's even better. So there's a value in that too. So we just have to keep, you know, learning what the value is of our stories and um, yeah, keep telling them and expressing them in whatever way that we can and encourage young people to do it as well. Get away from the television, keep that easy connection that we have like around the fire and keep doing it. Chris, both Lyndon and Andrea are talking about ways in which we're sort of bringing people together, but I think there would easily be an argument that particularly in the Howard era with the polarising of the black armband, white blindfold cultural wars, 
there was a real polarisation of national narrative. I was just wondering from your perspective if you've seen a positive shift in terms of what was quite a hard debate, a black and white debate almost at that time uh, in the years since. Yes, I, I think that that sort of mirrored the rise in opinion over fact. I don't think opinion is worth much unless it's underpinned by fact. But it felt to me like when Howard came to power, I remember that you know he'd been disparaged by uh, mainstream media. It felt to me like he he overvalued some of the fringe supporters and and was blind to their weaknesses because they supported him. And what what we ended up with, you know, twenty years on, is that some of our highest paid media performers are all about opinion. They write the same column over and over again. They don't do any research. And the value that the public saw in journalism was in a news industry where you know, people would get out of the office, get out there and do what I did growing up in country towns and, and actually report faithfully and accurately and honestly on, on what was going on. And I think that you know, when people bought a tabloid newspaper and read it on the train, you don't see that anymore, they might have bought it because they followed the rugby league and, you know, wanted to know whether Dean Witters would play next week. But then there was the time to actually leaf through the front pages and learn a little bit about the world as well. And I, I think we've lost that. And in journalism, you know, we have these courses, right, when people study journalism, they can either go into the PR stream or the, the news stream. More and more of them started going into the PR stream. And, and I think so many of them now don't understand what basic journalism is all about, what the news industry is all about. It's, you know, they see it as about advocacy. It's a follow-up question, but I think in a way it speaks to observations you've just made and that you made earlier about trying to navigate commentary on social media and and that actually journalism is about facts. But it seems that if there's a a new place of polarisation, it's around climate change. I was just wondering whether you see any shift in that, what had seemed like a quite polarised debate about whether there is climate change or not. Has that shifted, particularly with what we've seen over last summer and, and now with the changing views with the pandemic? I'm going to sound like, you know, it was all great in my day when clearly it wasn't. But one thing that we were better at was public education because it was seen as a core responsibility. I think that's gone by the wayside. Climate change, it's a fail when it comes to the media. You know, the media has failed to report climate change in a way that makes it matter, makes it matter, makes people really worry about the future of their kids and their grandkids. I think a lot of it is because we shy away from what is seen as lecturing. We we want to do good storytelling and the essential principle is to put the story ahead of the issue. But I think too many people in the the media have found the whole climate change thing just too hard and we end up just shouting at one another and, and actually giving the denialists a voice. I have seen some good reporting and that's where I think we've got to be smart about it and think about ways that we can tell that story that actually cut through. Michael Brissenden did a a great Four Corners on uh, climate change about a year ago. He basically went to the Cabinet Secretaries, the Finance Department and the people who were some of the mandarins in Canberra who were supposed to be there to give the government best policy direction And uh, to a man, they stood up and they said, yes, you know, we told the government that this matters and this had to be dealt with, but the parliament didn't listen. I think that was a good way of making the issue work by putting a useful story and some sort of credible commentators in front of it. The bad thing about it was it was on Four Corners and the ABC and it preached to the converted. We still haven't uh, managed to convince those people who used to read the Daily Telegraph on the train that it matters. It's a challenge we need to take on. Well, finally, these have been unprecedented times that have changed the way we live and the way we work. 
And while we've spoken about the big picture and the big challenges, I thought we could end with a more personal reflection from each of you and ask you what you've learned about yourself through the pandemic. And we'll start with you, Andrea. Yeah, wow. Yeah, big times. I learnt straight away, you know, the value of our elders. You know, that was the first place I went, you know, ring around, is everybody going to be okay? And I think that the way that our community has handled it has been exemplary. You know, it's been world leading, actually, the way we've been able to protect our elders and people vulnerable in our community. I learnt about how sacred my working space is. You know, I'm a writer and I work in isolation, actually. So, you know, I kind of got taken back to my element. But connection to land and country is really important. And, you know, so when the borders got closed down and I couldn't travel to country, it made it even more evident about how important it is to be able to get back onto country and not being able to do that has really highlighted that for me as well. So I guess the social distancing also works in a way to bring us together. So who, who are our champions? You know, I think we've used social media and telecommunications in a way never before as well. So, yeah, it's taught me about our ongoing resilience and survival. You know, it's not the first epidemic we've had to deal with, you know, and I think that we've come out of it really stronger, actually, as a people, but also as as individuals. And Chris? Well, I think it's scary, and I don't think it's going to get better in the short term. But um, like Andrea, I also live in isolation. I'm also a writer. And I find myself more nervous in crowds than was the case. I can't help noting the compliance of Australians. We tell ourselves we're these sort of reckless people who challenge authority. I don't think it's all that true. You know, we we are quite obedient and pleasingly obedient to common sense. And I think democracy really only works if there's active participation. And probably one of the great things about it is it's a cliche about us being all in it together but we are all in it together and I'm pleased to see people engaged and and doing their best. And Lyndon? The main thing I learnt was that I valued human interaction probably more than I thought as an introvert and particularly in a professional environment that you know I've got lucky enough to have colleagues that that I like and learn from. And just that sort of incidental interaction in the kitchen or grabbing a coffee actually is a really important part of work and our work and being aware and up-to-date on kind of what's happening. So that was one lesson. And the other one was that I can never be a teacher. Seven-year-old at home trying to homeschool and that didn't last very long. You've just heard Professor of Indigenous Policy and Acting Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. You've also been listening to multi-award winning journalist and author Chris Masters and Andrea James, theatre maker, performer and creative producer. They were taking part in the UTS Big Thinking Forum, Memory, Memorials and Truth, held last month as part of this year's Sydney Festival. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we take an in-depth look at the issues impacting the quality of life of mob living with disability. It's the extraordinary violation of human rights of some of our First Nations people with disability where they find themselves indefinitely detained in Australian prisons. At last count in the Northern Territory, there were more than 30 First Nations people with disability who were indefinitely detained. So that happens when a person is considered to be either a danger to themselves or a danger to others due to the nature of their disability. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.